Thank you. And uh, first, let me thank to Jason mostly for organizing this wonderful and intellectually stimulating workshop. I also thank Marcus, as well as my fellow panelists, Sam Riale and Lidwin Keptagenis. I hope Lidwin will forgive me, uh, as I have just completed 50 pages of harsh critique on her work, her recent book. <laughs> so let me start it. What's now considered as the Somalia syndrome, or more diplomatically, the world's most quintessential failed state by excellence, has baffled both academics and policymakers alike. With some going so far as to surmise that Somali state was dead and buried. To try to counter this argument, I have enunciated that the Somali state, I, I divided here the political system of law and government, was just wounded and thus severely seeking it, but not suffered from an actual death. Well before state and society relations were emasculated, the facade of the Somali state had begun to recede into distance, thus leading one warrior to classify it and also to characterize it as the cost of death, which is the state of death. My presentation draws on a recent PhD proposal I submitted to the University of Oxford which I have been successful. My project aims to investigate and explore how Somali society was able in the first place to form a stable nation state in the 1950s and 1960s when representative democracy prevailed. The study seeks to explore the history of Somalia from the decolonization era from 1950 to 1960 and to post independence democratic state from 1960 to 1969. The objective is to point out to the Somali society and Somalisti scholarship as well to go beyond their fixation of the current conundrum by drawing from the successful lessons that led to the formation of that historical state. From anthropological and historical perspective, the rise and fall of the Somali state has attracted a less contextualized and comprehensive scholarship than any other conflict in African studies. For example, Rwanda. Sierra Leone and Liberia. Needless to say that some signs of what happened in Somalia had also occurred in other parts of Africa. Thus, my main research questions are, how did the Somali state and the elite that sought to govern emerge from the first place? How did a people characterized as Axevolis society that was mostly founded on tight kinship allegiances, but without previous nas national state experience, contrive to imagine and embrace the concept of the nation-state. As observed by Michael Rush elsewhere in a similar conflict-ridden conflict, quote, for any society to be understood, so must it is politics, and if the politics of any society is to be understood, so must that society, quote. In order to provide a new interpretive method to scrutinize the Somali state and society within the theoretical framework of Rush, my focus is on two important periods of the Somali political history. Less literature has yet to be written about the era of liberal democracy. When Somalia was described in 1963 and 1965 as well by different social research studies, quote, as the most democratic state in Africa, quote. In my study, I seek to commence my examination with an introduction to colonial state in order to connect it to the post-colonial state. My aim here is to help, that's only where help is needed, 
Somalia learned a lesson from the process of state formation. As we have now struggling to form a state, the main conceptual basis for my research exploration stems from Shin Fokonsua Boriat's Politics of the Belly, which abruptly advocates long durée assessment of state and society to comprehend the current and contemporary conundrum. I also call on R.J. Romulus' concept of democide, that's a death by government, to explain the rupture that belaged Somalia following the end of democracy. The latter is Bremerfaisi's German to assess or to reassess the role of the state from the usage of violence to the fraud that characterized the parliamentary election of March 1969. This will also enable to delve more into Joel Migdal's conceptual framework of a strong state weak state paradigm to reframe the link between strong state weak society in the Somali context. Some of these theses are incompatible to each other, however. For instance, unequivocal in Migdal's argument is that African states are soft and unable to control society. While Somalia does not fall into this category, my argument runs counter to this theological structure. True to real terms, no single academic tradition could hardly by itself be fathomed the socio-political dynamics of Somalia or any other country for that matter. Multidisciplinary approach and method encompassing a combination of anthropology, history, political science, and sociology within the field of African studies is required to grasp the contemporary Somali syndrome and to build a better future for Somalia. My initial hypothesis is that society and state in Somalia are both polarized and topsy-turf. That is, the solitary society survived without a state for centuries and centuries, while the solitary state existed for almost three decades without the full consent of the, so of the whole society. Reflecting on the Somali case, I offer a rebuttal to Ilmari Kaigu's thesis that, quote, the state and the society in Africa are inseparable, quote. What one is appeared to many as one of the few examples of real nation states in Africa has come to reappear as a stateless society. Somalia, the number seven shaped country in the Horn of Africa, collapsed all at once in January 1991. Born as an independent, democratic, suffering African state in July 1960, with the merger of two entities, one in the north ruled by the British, the other in the south by the Italians, formed the formation of the Somali nation state. My definition is a polity of political community, contemporaneous with sorry about Contemporaneous with cultural values was a euphemeric experience in the beginning, as had, be, as had been the case of several other African states. <coughs> independence for Somalia was achieved mainly through negotiation, rather than as a result of a conflict in other contexts in Africa between local activists and colonial authorities. Epitomized as an archetypal example of the limitations of the Westphalian world system, even though it has never met the criteria of the Weberian ideal state. It currently constitutes an enormous challenge to global security. The Somali state had been taken as a pre-given, not as a colonial construct, however being the product of a colonial discovery. In fact, the term Somalia itself was an Italian invention. Before Italy renamed it its colonial area as Somalia Italiana in 1908, the Somali territories had been renowned for the land of clans or in the wars 
of the well-known British adventurer Richard Barton, the land of, quote, a fierce and turbulent race of Republicans, quote, with each subclan having its own gift to say nothing of our territory combined with what Lisa Malky calls mythical history. Prior to colonial encounter, there had been no central authority that coalesced Somali communities. In contrast to Congo, Ghana, Uganda, and several other pre-colonial states in Africa. In the case of Somalia, no concerted harmony among the rival clans had existed before colonial encounter. As Steve Fenton informs us, quote, people or peoples do not just possess culture or share ancestry. They elaborate this into the idea of community founded upon these attributes, quote. Following said premises, Somali pastoral nomadic theorists have depicted Somali society as a fixed ancestral entity known as Sub and Somali, nothing else, include, excluding other communities. <coughs> Given that Somalia appeared to use Benedict Anderson's bitty phrase as an, quote, imagined state, quote, was the independent Somalis so the state for granted instead of a process requiring nurturing. Songs composed during the, the height of the Somali nationalism in the 1960s and back to 1950s offer a unique insight into the average Somali perception of the state at the time. One of those songs, perhaps the most touching one, by the great Somali singer Abdullah Garshe, was chanted loud and clear as which means Mandeg the she-camel that served as a metaphor for the Somali state has now given birth to wonderful Tiwanis. So let's milk our she-camel. Note that the Tiwanis metaphorically standing for British Somaliland in the north and Somali Italian in the south. So the state stood for a camel and if you look at the Somali pastoral nomadic culture they say which means no matter if you take camel either by lawful or unlawful matter, what matters most is, to, is to, how to manage it to be your position. <coughs> the latter theory represents an episode anchored in the Machiavellian concept of the end justifies the means paradigm steered by an opportunistic individualistic tendency. Contemporary research that so to analyze the foundations of the Somali state have tended to, to neglect anthropomorphizing state and society in their chronic way, that is tracing from the decolonization to democracy. Adduced from the viewpoints of the left-wing left or right-wing, these studies were anchored by scholars amenable to colonialism or to post-colonial state authorities in one way or another. There are exceptions, though. Lee Casanelli's classic study, The Shaving of Somali Society, reconstructing the history of a pastoral people, traces back to 17th century up to the 19th century. Thus, it begins and ends outside the scope of Somali state formation. Alphonse Castagna's significant study, which is an important standard work, delimits its scope to the formation of parts and clan politics. With a somewhat similar vein, Sadio Tovel, Hazan Mahadale, and Ketrick Barnes's studies on Somali nationalism tell less about the state formation than part politics. Thus, the existing literature tends to skip descended historical parallels to draw urban lessons from it. Somalia is indeed too salient a cryptic subject to be left to political scientists, since no single theory could be fathomed to capture comprehensively such a phenomenon. 
Somalia now seems to have re-emerged as an internationally recognized state after the election of President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed in September last year. That issue has aptly written by Laura Hammond in the last issue of Journal of Eastern African Studies. A future research debate of a state structure in Somali studies may begin here. What sort of state is applicable to, to the new Somalia? Federal states, as my colleague earlier has discussed, centralized states or decentralized states. The debate is not restricted to but this, however. The question of Somaliland seems relevant as negotiations have started Somalia and Somaliland. How important are they remains to be seen and determined by scholars? But that question of the results of the negotiations can be obscured the future image and imaginations. The revivalist reconstructionist energies that Somalia is a one single state, not open for reformation, <laughs> emanates mainly from the south. The Somaliland says no more Somalia. The world does not know what to do except try, retry, and put the fractured, shattered, broken state back together again. Even though Somaliland is deemed as a, quote, quote, assassinist entity, quote, the question is, are, how important a role did its regional secondary status in Somalia in 1960-1991, highlighted by the bombardment of the 1980s by the dictatorial military regime of Siad Barre, play a part in that secession? Did Somaliland leave Somalia in 1991, or did Somalia leave Somaliland from 1960 to 1991? Out of the rules of the Somali Republic, a methodological democratic polity with a rape steadiness and statism, coupled with institutional privilege, has emerged. A French scholar on Africa, Gerard Brunier, has recently posited that the reason of why Somaliland remains successful in state building, despite the failures of the former Somalia, Somalia Italiana, is the idiosyncratic makeup of the two colonial systems, the British and the Italians. I think Italian scholars such as Angelo Del Bocca, Ercolesi, Goglia, Antonio Morone, Ciambolo Calginovati, Bola Tribodi, and Alessandro Triuluzzi would probably contest such a, such a premise exposing that the contemporary human isolation was bequeathed to Somalia by Italy. Yet what difference has the dual colonialist history made on the Somalis who lived in Somaliland versus to those of Somalia? Indeed, the changing political structures of post-transitional Somalia require a new ways of theorizing and conceptualizing the complex socio-political dynamics steering the succeeding and sub subsequent transformations. One may think about constructing a comparative set of historical periods or eras for Somaliland and Somalia that highlighted key moments, discontinuities, and continuities, even personalities. One of my attempts is to tackle some of these issues and, and break a new ground. To achieve such a stressful goal, a, concept a conceptual move should be my effort in the near future. Thank you. Thank you very much. And since we already are approaching the end of a very long but very interesting day of discussions, I would say we open the floor directly to questions to all of the three panelists, between Siham and Mohammed. So I would welcome questions to any of the three panelists. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a little bit of corrections of uh, 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 well done. Um, 
I want to say, um, Holif, uh, when you're comparing Holif and why Holif left here and uh, Alma did stay, Kulayman, uh, you Holif, Bahar Afshir, and then W were in the Mogadishu for a long time, until Somalia and the was created. So it is not correct that they ran away. They stayed and they party. They were part of the SS of Alman and his, uh, his group. So that's uh, one correction. Other thing, uh, I, 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 I have a problem with the one or two things. Yeah. Uh, I think Marco said that there are a lot of narrations. And there, you know, it, it is true that uh, someone explained uh, brutal in war and millions of people have different stories to tell now. Uh, and someone said that uh, the politicians and uh, clan leaders, they exploit the clan system to, or their own benefit. Now, I understand from your research that you selected a subject and then you started to, you know, cherry picking that subject. Some of them giving a little bit more weight, and others dismissing. And this will, uh, you know, uh, 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 bring a problem to the, your, your, you know, your research methodology. It seems that it's a bit unfair, a little bit biased. Um, so that's a problem. And so and the, the title itself is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, are you trying to say, Bigelow has enforced it, you know, forced it, um, uh, you know, to leave their homes or the, the forced by the gun pointy. Because somebody already uh, mentioned that people uh, were cooking where they feel safe. So if the people feel that they are not safe in, in a specific area, certainly they will move where they feel as safe. And it's, it seems that you are ignoring that, you know, uh, you know Can you, is this good? That's your point? Yeah. Others? Yeah? Yes, I have um, a question about the uh, concept of clan. Now, we're all talking about it. This is um, an English term. It was uh, used in the context of the Iroquois uh, many centuries ago in, in, in America. It was used to translate the, in terms of classical Roman studies, the term gens, gentis, in the context of the Roman state. I like somebody, I, I'm not a specialist of the, of the area, I'd like somebody to explain to me at the various levels of what this term means, but today, today in Somalia, and I'm not just talking about um, individual clans and internal politics, I'm talking about within the context of the state and whether we talk about failed states, weak states or whatever, or several states, um, frag fragmented states, we're still talking about um, clans in the context of the state. And I was very interested in your comment that Somali women, you said, are between two clans. <coughs> and I was wondering whether um, that had been fully exploited in the context of transitional justice, and if a, lo a lot of it is to do with recriminations between clans, whether that um, has been given a space um, in working on current interpretations of the past and maybe bringing about uh, reconciliations. So I'm interested if somebody could just explain to me 
Um, what's this term? Would be, what is the Somali term in use today? And what are some of its uh, associations? <coughs> Good. If we can <coughs> take a question from the panel. Oh, yeah, sorry, okay. I have a sense that um, you're coming from a position that technology, your role in research, huge differences and like that. Um, for the, I just wanted to know if you, if you can declare your interest so we know where you're coming from and we put people into context of the research they are making. Okay. So we can have a last question yeah. and then the answering round, brief question. I think my question is for Lidl. And uh, the most important thing is the title of the book, her book, <coughs> and her presentation. And uh, what followed Mohammed Siadbury's expulsion in 1991 was a warfare between Hawiya and the Daro. If you talk to the Hawiya, they will tell you that what happened was a crime conflict. But when you go to the Daro, they will tell you what happened was a crime cleansing. We, we have seen, Marcus have seen the, the work by Anne Lewis, who has who was first used in Somali studies, in the Somali studies scholarship, the word clan cleansing. He mentioned it, that it was come from a particular clan. So what I'm talking about is that, what happens what, when, uh, as a researcher, as a researcher, as a scholar, you affiliate yourself with, with two counter, counter, uh, counter narratives, one of them when, when you pick it up. What happens to you? You generalize the other, isn't it? And we have seen in Somali studies, a lot of scholars who associated themselves with particular clans, and that <coughs> ignites, it ignites. It, it, and some clans see themselves that they are supporting uh, with, with, with their arguments against another clan, but it ignites, it inflames the civil war. It restarts again and again. You know what I mean? Let me answer your question about clan. Sorry, uh, that's, that's okay. first the question. So that's okay. So now we start the answering round. We start with Lidwin because she got the most of the questions, and then we proceed on this one. All right. Well, I guess if you're saying that the people who were expelled from Mogadishu just fled home to their home territories, I would say that I would con 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 call that blatant denial. And I hope you read the book, you'll see the argument. So I've not much further to say about that. Um, uh, if you were right, you became La Histia for a while. Uh, but the, the point that I, was that I was making, that some people who were just as much or but, but that some people who are not at all in the high ranks of the Bible regime were cleansed out, I will stick by my tail, expelled, terror warfare and expulsion, while others became actually, they were not, they were Ali Mahdi's spokesman on the radio, Ali Mahdi, uh, in the radio book issue, talking about Hadar after the Haradia, you know, of, of, uh, of Yaman. Who is he? So there is something going on here, and I hope you'll read the book and see what I mean. Now, uh, with regard to, so, so that's one. Um, clan, this is of course uh, what we've written about for about 100 years. Uh, I distinguish, it cannot be answered, I think it needs to be read about in the interpretation of many people, some of them sitting at this table. But I would say that I distinguish between the identity of uh, peoples and the so group identities and the political use of those identities. And it is hard to distinguish them, and I, it, because they are so close, you know. So political use of the good feelings people have about clan is what I've tried to write about. I do not think that differences between clan caused conflict. 
I believe that the political instrumentalization of clan uh, and clan hate narratives in very particular circumstances cost, uh, 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 cost conflict. Um, but there are certainly uh, some things we could suggest which you read because it's a very big debate and it's a long story. Now, with regard to, uh, to Mohammed, you are basically saying that I align myself with the clan. Um, I think um, that that is not the case because I do not accept the category of clan. I do not assign agency to a clan. I do not say Rehel Hebel did this or Rehel Hebel did that. But that does not mean that it is not received that way by many people, including you, apparently. Now, what, I, what I can I say to that is the following. I wrote chapter one very, uh, about poetry that described the violence. And what I found, I actually fell off my chair in the middle of the night during my uh, sabbatical in Holland, is that they do not say who did what to whom. Then I became really curious. I had heard stuff, of course, but I said, what actually happened if people cannot speak about that? Because you go to Rumo and other poetic cycles, and people all the time, and even teasing each other and playing with each other on the basis of clan, right? Clan is everywhere, but in those that poetry is nowhere. Then I started to research it. If you look at my chapter two, there is more literature on the Bada regime. I try to do, I would say, an unflinchingly critical, unflinchingly critical summary, analysis of the Bada regime and its large-scale violence against civilians. I do call the what happened in the Northwest. I call it, I, I say that it has the dimension of clan cleansing, but because the SNM 